Hello, friends, and welcome to The Membership, a podcast about the life and work of Wendell Berry, the Kentucky farmer, poet, novelist, essayist, and activist. As a reminder, Tim, John, and I have broken up our discussion of Wendell Berry's 1969 essay collection, The Long-Legged House, into two episodes. Last week, in episode 2A, we discussed two essays from that collection, The Rise and The Long-Legged House. This week, in episode 2B, we'll pick back up with the end of our discussion of the essay, The Long-Legged House, and then we'll finish with a discussion of A Native Hill, the final essay in the collection. Well, before we move on from this essay, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about what Wendell Berry has to say about his coming to understand his responsibility as a writer with this place as his subject. So as as writers yourselves, um, what did you make of what he had to say about that. He he has a lot of interesting things to say about sort of his inheritance as a writer from Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Uh, you sort of had these stereotypes that he that he inherited. At one point, I, I don't remember where it is, or otherwise I'd quote it uh, directly. Uh, he said he didn't want to sound like a Kentucky senator trying to sound like a romantic poet. Like, <laughs> uh, uh, so he had to figure out a way to talk about his place in in that way. And sort of Andrew Marvell, the 17th century poet, was sort of instrumental in helping him figure out how to talk about a place. So. Rather than diving into that specifically, like what what did you guys make about uh, make of what he had to say about learning to be a, a writer that was devoted to this area in Kentucky and learning and 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 taking pains to learning how to talk about it? John, what do you what would you say to that? Well, I think my biggest struggle as a writer is trying to write something that doesn't sound like Wendell Berry. Who <laughs> uh, doesn't try to sound like Wendell? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is. Which isn't really good for anyone, you know. Uh, what is it? Um, is it uh, blue, the anxiety of influence? Right, you gotta mm-hmm. figure out a way. Yes, to, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I think I think he's doing that with Thoreau in this essay. So you're in good company. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's great. Yeah, yeah. It's that. That is. <laughs> yeah, I, it just it speaks. The biggest thing it speaks to is the challenge, and even honestly, if you take away place. This speaks to the basic struggle of for great for for these writers of, of finding a voice, right? Like mm-hmm. that's that's enough of a struggle, right? <laughs> Let alone to involve the place of where you are and like how to have a voice. So it's like having a voice, but also having a voice here, <laughs> which is a which maybe I don't you know, and then maybe the the what you realize is that the here part comes naturally as long as you're devoted to the place, right? As long as you're devoted to there. Then, it, then if you're being true to yourself, then hopefully your voice comes with it. But Yeah, um, and that's what he said sort of stuck out to him about uh, Andrew Marvell. So it's it it funny, like, returning to this because I've read uh, Upon Appleton House before. So it's part of this genre of the country house poem where, you know, poets in the 17th century made their money by, you know, getting paid by wealthy patrons, right? So mm-hmm. they'd write these long, elaborate poems praising the manor houses of these these wealthy patrons, right? So, and what uh, Barry finds so fascinating is that he reads Marvell as, like, sort of getting lost in the experience of the place, even within this poem that has 
this not so subtle ulterior motive, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, of complimenting this lord on his, you know, yeah. really nice manner. <laughs> um, but he, he like finds a voice in description, right? And that's what Wendell Berry says that his, yeah. that he had to hew to when he wrote his first poem mm. uh, was just stick to description and be true to what you're, what you're seeing. Yeah. It's a, it's kind of the, the opposite. He has that, the great quote where he says that a, a man can be provincial only by being blind and deaf to mm-hmm. his province. Right? Yeah, <laughs> that he's the opposite. Where it's like I am, I'm blind and deaf to it in the sense that I'm still me, but I'm in this place, and so I'm, I'm not here just to talk about this place. Uh, or well, that's not. I take that back. He is talking about the place, but um, I'm not here just to puff up this place. Right. right? I'm not right. here just to praise this place. I'm here to talk about what it is, mm-hmm. not what like I see it as or something. He 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 definitely tries to stay stay grounded. And what it is that. is the result of all these rivers that are running into mm-hmm. the Gulf mm-hmm. of Mexico and all these migratory birds coming down from other places. Yeah. Yeah, I think the lesson, one of the key lessons for me as a writer is also the key lessons for is also one of the key lessons for me as a human being, which is just to pay attention, Mm -hmm. to pay attention. And because writing is how I make sense of my world and what I'm seeing and what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling is -hmm. to pay attention and to write about it. Like whether it ends up just in a journal or if it ends up in, in a book or a story or poem or something to, to see and to, and to write about it. Um, and probably to spend more time outside than I do, <laughs> maybe to, <laughs> to set up a card table on the back deck every once in a while, right. so that I'm looking at an actual nature scene rather than the the large painting that I have over over my desk uh, on the wall. <laughs> to experience your backyard from somewhere other than behind your lawnmower, like <laughs> yeah, yeah. yes, yeah, that's that's my problem. I like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, is there anything else about this essay that any, any other... I mean, obviously, this is a huge essay, and we haven't even sort of scratched the surface of it. Anything else that you guys wanted to bring up about this essay before we move on? Um, I think it's... We, we talked about the the tone that he had of uh, it being a sort of journal or as a following his nose and taking just taking his time with it and letting it become whatever it was going to become. And I think it's worth reading the end of it. Sure. And I, I can read it, but I just I, I love the I love this. And somewhere back of all this, in a relation too intricate and profound to trace out, is the life that Kern Matthews lived here before me. Perhaps he too experienced holy days here. Perhaps he only sensed their possibility. But if he had not come here and made a firm allegiance with this this place, it is likely that I never would and I never would have. I am a, I am his follower and his heir. For an inheritance to be really great, Rene Char says, the hand of the deceased must not be seen. The camp is my inheritance from Curran Matthews, and though certain of his meanings continue in it, his hand is not on it. As an inheritance, he touched it only as a good man touches the earth to cherish and augment it. Where his hand went to the ground one forgotten day, the flowers rise up spring after spring. And now it is getting on toward the end of March. Just as the grass had started to grow and the jonquils were ready to bloom, we had a foot of snow and more cold. Today it is clear and thawing, but the ground is still white. Though the redbirds sing his meeting song, it is still winter, and my thoughts keep their winter habits. But soon there will come a day when, without expecting so, I will hear the clear seven-note song of the sycamore warbler passing over the camp roof. Something will close and open in my mind, and like a page turning, it'll be another spring. 
I just love the details, like the golden details in that last little paragraph. Mm-hmm. All the little things where, where he's basically showing you without telegraphing it. I live in this place, and here's how complex it is, right? I, I love this place. I've been given this place. I've been gifted this place. And just in that last little bit, talking about all these little elements that make up what it is. It's, it's yeah. very beautiful. That's really nice. Yeah, I was just flipping through uh, my, my copy of, of this essay. There are a lot of places that I you know, wrote about in the margins, but one that stands out. And for me, this is a great summary of this essay and all three of these essays, really. And so much of Wendell Berry's work as a writer uh, and exploring uh, what he does. And it's just simply the world is full of places. Why am I here? And I, I feel like that is such a great question because loaded, you know, in in that within that question, why am I here? Of all of the places I could be, why am I here? Are other questions like who was here before me and how do I make a life in this place that's worthy of this place? And what are my hopes for this place? And what does my place hope for, for me? Anyway, it's it's such a great summary of of so much of what I love about Wendell Berry's approach to place and, and rootedness. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Well, and in, in that, con- to connect that to what Tim wrote, I, I really struggled with at first understanding what he meant by using that quote about the best inheritance is the one that your inheritor's hands aren't on it, mm. you know, that's fully given to you. The people before you haven't don't have expectations on you, and in, in that, you know, uh, yeah, I don't know where I'm going with this, but yeah, I also yeah, I, I get, but I also see it as as that their hands aren't on it, that they haven't damaged it that much, right? right? That they've right. they've left it yeah, in a, in a yeah. true state, and they've left it they've left its character there. They haven't like imposed their vision on it to the point that you can't do anything but live within that vision. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Was it Henry Adams that said about teachers that teachers touch eternity? They never know whether influence is going to stop. Hmm. Um, I think that I believe that's true of <laughs> teachers, but I, I believe it's it's true of, of anyone, mm-hmm. of everyone, that we're all sort of making these decisions and living these lives that are going to that are joined to the lives that came before us, but are also going to ripple throughout time mm-hmm. in ways that we will never, ever know. And so that compels us to live uh, more responsibly and, and with greater care and affection for each other and for, for our neighborhoods, for our places. Yeah. I think that's a pretty, pretty perfect way to, <laughs> to wrap up that essay. I mean, that's a, yeah, just, that's a very well said, it's a good notion. Yeah. All right. And the last essay uh, we're going to cover from this collection long-legged house is the last essay in the book and it's titled a native hill and i feel like a lot of the things i have to introduce this essay are pretty similar not that the essay itself is the same essay but it's just as i have a similar things to say about which we've said about the last two some of that is the the element of memoir to it of telling a story but in some way it's like the the first essay the rise was very much about the nature, right, and the, the power of nature that's surrounding him in his place. Long-legged house was about him and how he became who he is and where he came from and a little bit of his background. And then this one seems like a combining of the two. I don't know if that makes sense to you guys, but he's he's telling a story of a, a specific place and he's getting into some of the, the details about a certain 
portion of his life or a certain uh, contrast that he experienced when he followed the literary path to New York City. He went to college. He was studying to be a writer, to be a teacher, and he found himself teaching at New York University, which is, as he acknowledges in the in the essay, kind of the thing you want to do. Right? It's the place you want to be. You want to be in New York. You want to be teaching. You want to be surrounded by these figures and have close access to all these literary events and publishers and all of this. And then he went kind of against the grain, and he decided that uh, he was being drawn back to this land that was his inheritance and his home. And he found a teaching position at University of Kentucky and he went back and he, well, obviously he went back. We know, we know that, but he, he, he came back and he had to sort of deal with the fallout of being gone. Some of which was that he had mentioned a professor or a, or a colleague of his saying to him in, in New York, quoting, was it Thomas Wolf? Remember saying, you know, you can't go home. And he's like, that was so ridiculous that he would tell me that, that he would say that because he doesn't know what that means. And he said, of course, I can't go back to a place and be a child again, but I can go back to a place and be who I am once again, I guess is the feeling you get. And so he, this is an essay that's very much about him becoming uh, attached and rooted to his place and basically giving himself permission to find the infinite in this small place, as opposed to feeling like he should be somewhere else. That there isn't a, there isn't a obvious choice of where a writer should be or where, I mean, for that matter, where a farmer should be or anything like that. It's that uh, you are home in the place that is your true home. And then he's, he's coming to terms with that. So uh, what are some of your first impressions about the about this essay? Well, I, I had to note that he was in, he was at New York University, which is, if memory serves me correctly, isn't that near or in Greenwich Village? I have no idea. I think it is, uh, okay. but around the same time Bob Dylan was, so just a little okay. bit of a, <laughs> hey, a nice, late, yeah. late 50s, early 60s, oh, uh, so you can sort put of that, imagine imagine those two in the same. Put, put, those, uh, <laughs> put that question down for when, if we ever get to talk to them. Right, we'll right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I actually really resonated with that. You know, I I grew up in the Nashville area, moved to Knoxville to go to grad school, and um, had every intention when I first moved there of going back to Nashville or to some other other city. And when I met Laura and, you know, she had a job uh, teaching out here in Johnson City or the the Tri-Cities area in East Tennessee, um, you know, I had people, you know, when I would tell them I'm, I was going to move here, you know, I, you know, people, some of my friends from uh, back in Nashville in particular were, you know, giving me those kinds of questions like, are you sure you want to do that? Uh, you know, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I definitely resonated with that. And, and I think p- part of that, right, was they were like, you know, you're going to lose your openness, your sort of. I guess progressive values. If you move back to that provincial, provincial town, and he said he was even kind of watching out for it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> himself, yeah. it's like making sure that his his uh, who he'd become or what he'd run into wouldn't atrophy away and turn into something else. Yeah, or, or revert. Yeah. What about you, John? Yeah, it made me think of fly over the term flyover country, mm-hmm. and uh, as someone who grew up in the Midwest, often living in very small towns. 
I remember hearing that for the first time and just being so totally offended by it. I felt like what is superior at New York University was warning him is, you know, you're you realize you're going to literary flyover country. Like that's the part <laughs> that's a that's a part of the country. Those are the people that real writers fly over in order to write about something more interesting that's happening on one of the coasts uh, mm-hmm. and in particular in the city. And of course, we're all grateful that you made that you made that choice <laughs> yeah. because there's no such thing. There's no such thing as flyover country. There's no such thing as literary flyover country. Yeah. I think he would he would give you a big amen uh, in that in the phrasing of that that he uh, and I had referenced this earlier talking about a different essay but he he explains that he would need now that he's settled into the specific place and even not even just the town and not even just the house but this one portion of the land that he's talking about uh, he says that he would need an entire lifetime to take it all in right that if you're in a place and you have that mindset and you're seeing the place as infinite and you're seeing the place as fascinating and important and worth taking care of. You're exactly. You cannot describe it as flyover country because it's. He's doing about you know as as far the opposite of flying over as possible. He's staying put. I, I one thing I kind of under or I didn't mention in talking in the, in my sort of little introduction was talking about the idea of he he gets into some I guess it was the the soapbox ish that he gets into gets up on in this essay is about how Westerners impacted this land that they're on right or the the place where he where he ended up uh, that, that that becomes a, a continual theme and this idea of being a native and and how Americans look at the land and how the natives would have looked at the land and how now that he has found his place how he's choosing to think about it and uh, an example of that being uh, he said that we Speaking of Americans, we have lived by the assumption that what was good for us would be good for the world. And this has been based on the even flimsier assumption that we could know with any certainty what was good even for us. <laughs> um, I, I love that. Now she says, we've been wrong. We must change our lives so that it will be possible to live by the contrary assumption that what is good for the world will be good for us. And that requires that we make the effort to know the world and to learn what is good for it. We must learn to cooperate in its processes and to yield to its limits. I love that that last little bit and learn to, to yield to its limits. Yeah, I mean, that part was, I mean, what you're talking about, Tim, in terms of even looking at his predecessors, you know, he, he usually has good things to say about his ancestors who mm-hmm. um, were farming prior to industrialization and, and all of that. And, you know, I, I think casual readers of his might accuse him of some kind of nostalgia for like turn mm-hmm. of the century agriculture, turn of the 20th mm-hmm. century agriculture. But yeah, I mean, he, he even has a lot. Uh, a lot of critical things to say about even the tradition of agriculture that he grew up in is it's imposing this Western European model of agriculture on this land that the um, Native Americans had had lived in a lot more holistically. Mm-hmm. The, uh, he says the the idea that when we are faced with abundance, one should consume abundantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, that yeah, that, that's that's been the the mo so far. Um, even of his of his own people in their own way, speak. He says it's become the basis of our present economy, right? <laughs> Which is it's really interesting to think about that. And I'm I'm getting ready to spend the year talking about American lit in my classes and thinking about the American identity and and realizing how huge a part of our identity that is, and that it makes perfect sense that these people come up, they 
you know, pull up onto the coast in this one tiny little area and they find out this land is just massive and infinite. And for, you know, hundreds of years, believing that it's like a, an endless treasure trove, mm-hmm. right? And, and that it's, and it's been found by us, not something that we have stumbled upon that people have been on for 10,000 years, but that, that it, it's like, well, of course we have permission to use, and of course we have permission to shape it into what we want it to be because, nobody's hands have gotten to it like they have in Europe or like they have in, you know, parts of Asia. Right. Yeah. Uh, another section I, I wanted to bring up, it says he is, uh, and this is when he is, he has come back. <laughs> he says that I was, I was, and this is going back to what we were talking about with his transition away from New York university and his friends calling him and writing him letters to like check in on him and be like, just keep, you know, watch out, keep yourself, be careful. You don't want to turn into one of the, one of them or something. But he says as if I was going to go off and they, uh, it was feared that I would grow paunchy and join the farm bureau. He said, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, he said, I have come finally to see a very regrettable irony in what happened at a time when originality is more emphasized in the arts, maybe than ever before. I undertook something truly original. I returned to my origins and it was generally thought by my literary friends that I had worked my ruin as far as I can tell, this was simply because my originality, my faith in my own origins, had not been anticipated or allowed for by the fashion of originality. I feel like that's the little glowing spot in the middle of him <laughs> as a person that he's he's always uh, where maybe where who who we know Wendell Berry and as through his writings in some ways kind of crystallized with that moment that with that final that final piece of irony that he eventually embraced and and really I think eventually did a pretty big service for everyone because I think one reason that people resonate so much with Wendell Berry these days is because we are living in a world in a literary world where New York and LA or whatever are not as important as they used to be that that's that world's kind of opening up and people are giving <laughs> are, are feeling more permission to be in their own place and becoming a writer of their place which is kind of another kind of, sort of a different brand of irony in this world of publishing because we live in such a global world. Everybody's thinking on the same place, but I, I feel like his writing and his style of writing gives his readers and maybe uh, aspiring writers permission to be who you are, where you are, rather than feeling like you have to jump into an MFA and land yourself in Brooklyn or something. Yeah, definitely agreed. Yeah. So what other parts stuck out to you guys? Um, I mean, the section on religion definitely really stuck out to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, he uh, he's embracing and at the same time really sort of uh, starkly critiquing American Christianity. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, I think I think the first time I heard Wendell Berry's name mentioned was in a sermon, which is great. And I heard a lot of pastors quote Wendell Berry. And I've heard some pastors quote Wendell Berry who sort of knowing them and how preoccupied they were with some form of orthodoxy um, sort of made me scratch my head a little bit because, uh, you know, I, 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 he's very resistant to embracing any sort of idea of orthodoxy if you try to try to pin him down. He's uh, much more interested in, I mean, it, it seems like what he's saying in, in the essay here is that religion is, the, the religious impulse in him is about uh, living with open, fruitful questions that mm-hmm. open you up to mystery. And the questions he's talking about are 
what is this place? What is in it? What is its nature? How should men live in it? What must I do? Yeah, it's it's a uh, Jason. I think it was you had earlier said something about people outsiders may read him and see him as a like a nostalgic figure, like a nostalgic having a sort of nostalgia for the way things were a long ago, and that's not actually the case. Yeah, and I think that the, what you're describing now is sort of a a supportive a supporting fact for what you had said, right? That that if he was actually nostalgic for a, a the past or for the good old fashioned way of doing things, he wouldn't, that would not be him. I don't think you would describe that uh, nostalgia as being sort of open-ended. You'd almost expect him to be more of a uh, strict orthodox kind of yeah. viewpoint. Yeah. I mean, what he has to say about, he doesn't have very, very great things to say about salvation. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because he's talking about sort of the the body soul duality that he thinks has been destructive in uh, Western and particularly American Christianity. Which you know there are there are lots and lots of Christians now who are sort of coming back to that that realization that those lines have been drawn too starkly. I mean, like N.T. Wright comes to mind um, mm-hmm. for sure. But I don't know, John. You, you've written about theology in the church and uh, Wendell Berry's been influential to you. I mean, how do you, how does this section here on religion strike you? Well, it was a reminder that I, I think the ecological crisis that Berry talks a lot about is in my opinion, a theological crisis first. Um, hmm. I feel like the, I feel like the church of Christendom and I'm saying that putting it that way, because I think it started certainly before Europeans came to this land I think the Church of Christendom has given license to and, and potentially even baptized a way of being in the world that allows allows people, uh, justifies the destruction of this world. And um, I remember a conversation that I had several years ago with I, not really a relative, but a sister-in-law's relative. We were staying at their house and we were talking about climate change and... This, this this woman who grew up in a religious tradition very similar to the one that I grew up in said in these exact words, but it's all going to burn anyway. <laughs> yeah. And so from her starting, her starting point was that this world is fated for destruction and that what matters most is the state of her soul and everyone else's and uh, we can use this world up in whatever way we see fit, sort of in service to that, that goal. There's no sense of, of stewardship. It was dominion, you know, it was domination. And I, I would remember just being, being shocked. I grew up in that tradition, but to hear it stated so baldly, I guess, um, was surprising for me. I loved that section the, about, about religion and you mentioned the questions that he asks. What is this place? What is in it? What is its nature? How should men live in it? What must I do? I like the idea that for him, living well in a place is an ongoing conversation. And it's a conversation that will last an entire lifetime. And that maybe in in some ways won't even end after he dies. In the paragraph right after that, he says... I have not found the answers, though I believe that in partial and fragmentary ways they have begun to come to me. But the questions are more important than their answers. In the final sense, they have no answers. They are like the questions. 
They are perhaps the same questions that were the discipline of Job. They are part of the necessary enactment of humility, teaching a man what his importance is, what his responsibility is, and what his place is, both on the earth and in the order of things. And though the answers must always come obscurely and in fragments, the questions must be persistently asked. They are fertile questions. In their implications and effects, they are moral and aesthetic and in the best and fullest sense practical. They promise a relationship to the world that is decent and preserving. And I would say that a lot of the theology that I grew up in, the theology of, of Christendom that I was that I mentioned earlier, is very distrust, distrustful of questions. It's distrustful of doubt. Like they, it's it's all about answers and yeah. And it, anyway, and Wendell Berry is just describing a way of being in the world and a way of thinking about religion too. That is that relies on those questions. Yeah, I, I'm that, repeating myself a bit now. Sorry. No, it's okay. It's a it's worth repeating, but that's it. It, it reminds me of. Uh, Elie Wiesel, when he talks about his childhood and looking and and learning about mysticism and studying and wanting to go down that path before he was uh, sent to Auschwitz, and he he describes a interaction he has with this mystic kind of kind of homeless Kabbalist who who lives in his town, Moshe the Beetle, and this is described in Night, the beginning of Night, but and that he he asks. Moisha asks him why he's praying or what he, what Ellie is praying for, and he says, I don't really know. Uh, and then he asks the same question of Moisha, and Moisha says that I pray to God to give me the wisdom to ask the right questions. And he, and he that becomes this theme of the book, is that there's there's some magic that's lost in the answer, that the, the strength you find and the truth you find is actually in just asking the right questions. And, and this you know, goes back to Jason, you making that point about the open, fruitful questions. I think that's just a, a definite through line there, and, and it makes and it starts to make perfect sense. I think is uh, is a way to connect his sort of theology to the characters of his novels, because I think that's they never they're not a, a group of people that talk about religion in the way that you would stereotypically imagine people who live in the country in the south or in the sort of south to talk about religion, right? That that's the story you told from from night reminds me of, of something else that I I think is is related. It's not about asking questions explicitly, but I think it's it's very resonant with this, and it also involves uh, another Jewish writer uh, and teacher. And that was a story that I heard about Abraham Joshua Heschel when he was close to death. The, according to the story that I heard, he was sitting with one of his students, and he told his students. You know, I never asked, I never prayed for fame. I never prayed for wealth. I never prayed for power. What I asked for from God was wonder, hmm. a sense of wonder. And God gave that to me. And to me, that sense of awe and wonder and reverence runs through this whole essay yeah. of Wendell Berry standing in awe and wonder of nature and mm-hmm. as you were as we were saying earlier submitting himself to that even apprenticing himself to the hill in a way that is humble and fruitful yeah down yeah. the hill and in the the stream you know he talked he, he spent some time talking about the stream and describing it as the the wrist of the hill i, I love that yeah. the, mm-hmm. that the oh, anatomy of his place this is this is the wrist of his hill which you know brings 
I think whoever you read this, it should just jettison your mind into this thought of what is the wrist of my hill? Like, what is the wrist that I'm missing that's right by me? This kind of pulse of my community or this pulse of my my place that he he pays such special attention to, and and it's a something you want to always be on the on the lookout for. Do you guys feel like you know what the the wrist of your hill is? Hmm. <laughs> I don't even know how to answer that. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm just asking you guys, but it's it's not. I'm not asking literally. What's the closest uh, stream that you need to go to and and feel? But uh, just in, in as a general sense, like what is the what is that that wrist uh, the pulse of your community? Hmm. I don't know. I don't it's know. It's just something. Yeah. I mean, it's just a it's it's an enormous question. For, from him that it's it's yeah yeah I don't know where to start you know I I think for us I want to I shouldn't answer this question Twitter. right away it's it <laughs> uh, it's the kind of question I really should not answer right away mm-hmm. uh, but I'm going to but it's it's such a <laughs> it's such a I love how you how you phrase that Tim like that's the kind of question that deserves to be sort of tacked up on the wall somewhere mm-hmm. um, just to, so, to keep coming back to it. But I do think that because our town has the creek running through the middle of it and it's sort of built up on these hills around it, the town, like the life of the town, as well as our waste, our, you know, the oil that's leaking from our car, everything flows downhill into Silver Creek. And I think for us, that may be the, the wrist of mm. our place. Mm. Um, I was talking to a, a woman who teaches ecology at the local high school. And she was saying that bullfrogs have, have been found in the Creek for the first time. And just talking about the implications of what that means for, for her, it meant that the Creek is warming, but I wonder what other, things would be revealed about the, the the health of the creek and therefore the health of of our place in general if we paid more attention to this sort of micro watershed that flows right through the the center of our community hmm. yeah i mean uh, yeah as i think of that john I, I think of the river that that runs through elizabeth and the the town i'm living on that the, the outside of and we used to live in an apartment that was right down on the river and um, right next to our apartment, of course, was a Walmart. And I think of that sort of juxtaposition, like what, what for, for, for the human community around us, what should the risk of, of that be and, and what, what actually is it? And, and to have those two things right next to each other. I mean, I had a, uh, I have a friend in, in Elizabethan who's a, a Episcopal priest, and um, he said, you know, I finally realized if I'm actually going to meet the people of this community, especially the not-so-well-to-do people of this community, I've got to start shopping at Walmart, <laughs> as much as I hate that. <laughs> and that's like the least Wendelberry thing to say ever. But but he made a point of going there and meeting people. And, you know, it's uh, it's the closest Walmart for a lot of folks who live up in the mountains in Carter County. And Carter County here is, uh, at least in recent years, has had some of the I don't, I don't know what measure it is, but the most meth sold per capita or, or, mm. or, or something like that. And, so, and the most uh, 
gun violence per capita yeah. in Tennessee, I think. Yeah, like it's a um, outside of the 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 quaint little Mayberry-ish city of Elizabethan. Um, it's mm-hmm. it gets pretty rough pretty quick. Um, so just to sort of have those that the Watauga River um, right beside the Walmart is uh, and right beside a burned down rayon factory that has uh we were we, yeah. were we were living in the in the apartments there they uh were trying to build more apartments and unearthed a storage tank that they didn't know was there of some chemical that is flammable upon contact with air um and there's a giant fireball oh and gosh. yeah yeah so i mean i, I <laughs> As much as I hate to say it, that might that area there with the Walmart and the river like might be the wrist where you can take the pulse of of the community, and it's it's not looking good, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Sadly, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. To the point about your friend who's the Episcopal priest shopping at Walmart. Yeah. I have a I have a, a I'll call him an acquaintance, not really a friend because we don't know each other very well. But he's an acquaintance who is a writer and pastor and professor. His name is David Fitch. And he spoke at our first slow church conference. He's written a lot about sort of the McDonaldization mm-hmm. of the church, but he goes to Walmart. I'm no, excuse me. He goes to McDonald's every single morning for coffee hmm. because that's where his, that's where his neighbors are. Yep. He said, you know, sometimes you have to be, be present in these large systems in ways that may make you uncomfortable, but, but serve, serve the the good in real ways. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think so. I think that's Stuff. right. I go to Absolutely. McDonald's just because I like McGriddles. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. 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 I, 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 Jason and I don't know anything about that. Yeah, no. I wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> yeah. No. Oh, goodness. Um, I think one kind of place that I we could finish up talking about this essay is that I, I had a strong feeling at the end, and this this all ties into what we've been talking about as far as the uh, finding uh, strength and identity in your in your place at the at the end of the essay, and for the last couple of paragraphs, it very much to me felt like a precursor of the piece of wild things, which is one of his most I guess anthologized or you know a poem that gets a lot of attention. And he, he he speaks in a way that felt like a precursor of that. He he says that I have been walking in the woods and have lain down on the ground to rest. It is the middle of October, and around me, all through the woods, the leaves are quietly sifting down. The newly fallen leaves make a dry, comfortable bed, and I lie easy, coming to rest within myself as I seem to do nowadays only when I am in the woods. It's the the beginning of the final section of the essay. And he, he ends by saying, when I move to go, it is as though I rise up out of the world. And I think that quietness, and also we were, you know, we're back to that Thoreau-esque tone of journaling, right? Just being out in nature and, and describing your place and describing where you're going and what you're doing um, feels like a very appropriate way for this collection to end because this is the last, last essay in the entire book. It also... Yeah, as a couple fellow Wilco fans, it immediately made me think of um, "Remember the Mountain Bed." Yeah, yeah. Song "Remember the Mountain Bed," yeah. which is I think, which I think is one of the songs that Jason and I had very originally talked about being a uh, sort of a theme song for this <laughs> this uh, podcast. I think we had talked about using that song somehow just because we felt like it had a. It's the, and if you haven't, 
if you're listening and you don't know the song we're talking about, uh, Wilco and Billy Bragg were given the opportunity to record lyrics, unused lyrics by uh, Woody Guthrie. And he had a song that was called Remember the Mountain Bed. And it's a very kind of a guided imagery leading you through this man and this woman who are uh, laying in almost exactly as he describes in this bed of leaves on the mountain. And it's describing their, uh, what they see and what they feel and what they're, uh, and it just feels like a, a very similar tone. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that is a, I think that's a great association. And I just pulled up the lyrics cause it's one of my favorite Wilco recordings. I pulled up the, the, the lyrics to get this right. The second to last stanza, he says, uh, Woody Guthrie wrote in, Jeff Tweedy sings, I crossed many states just to stand here now, my face all hot with tears. I crossed city and valley, desert and stream to bring my body here. My history and future blaze bright in me and all my joy and pain go through my head on our mountain bed where I smell your hair again. That's about as good a way as you can uh, <laughs> end this conversation. I think it's a, it's a pretty amazing overlap there mm-hmm. uh, sorry to cut you off Jason what were, no. were you well, gonna say something to uh, yeah I mean I, I just uh, I mean this that that ending is really stunning I mean he's he's imagining himself almost like decomposing into the ground right becoming one with the earth my body begins its long shudder into the hummus he says um, I feel my substance escape me, carried into the mold by beetles and worms. Days, winds, seasons pass over me as I sink under the leaves. For a time, only sight is left to me. A passive awareness of the sky overhead, birds crossing, the mazed inner interreaching of the treetops, the leaves falling, and then that too sinks away. It is acceptable to me, and I am at peace. And you know, Tim, you, you mentioned mysticism earlier. And my understanding or definition of mysticism is that that sort of experience of oneness uh, with the divine um, mm-hmm. and with and with the world. And it, this is a, a completely sort of world focused or yeah creation focused mysticism. This experience of oneness with with creation, and he's not so worried about heaven or some sort of higher plane of being. He's just feeling his oneness with, with creation. And it's just some, some stunning writing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And just kind this of is baffling a, that this is ahead, so, so early in his career, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, this yeah. is an amazing starting point. I wish that I would have thought of, of Woody Guthrie and Wilco <laughs> or even of the piece of wild things. Uh, mm-hmm. what it, although this is, this is, this is fine too, but what it reminded me of actually is Harry Potter. Um, oh, wow! Remember the, in the in the legend of the Deathly Hallows, the the three brothers, um, and it talks about their relationship with death. And the one brother greeted death as a friend. And I've really, really love that description. And I feel like Wendell Berry, both because of his, I would say, because of his place and because of his theology, is comfortable with death in a way that is very striking for me. Whether, you know, whenever that would come for him, I mean, you wrote this back in the 60s, that you knew that he would greet it ultimately as a friend uh, because in ways that were going to be unknown to him, his story would go on and the, the place would go on without him. 
Uh, I think he even says something similar to that somewhere in this essay that, you know, the, the, the morning after his death, the, the land there will still be glorious. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a, that's a great, a great connection. And I think we should, <laughs> should welcome all connections no matter what. Cause I think um, I just got a feeling that somewhere in the future, I might make a reference to the three amigos on this podcast. So uh, just, yeah, I have that feeling too. Yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, yeah. I think a strong premonition that I <laughs> connected a short story to the, to the three amigos. So stay tuned to find out how, how that happens. <laughs> but uh, yours is much more <laughs> substantive. So, um, yeah, anybody else have, do you have anything else you, you want to say about this, this essay or this collection? I don't think so. Yeah, me either. I think we've covered, we've covered a lot of ground. So yeah, <laughs> amazing amount of ground actually. <laughs> There's so much here. I mean, you could do an entire season. You can do an entire, we could, we could have done whole episodes on just one of these, these essays, but we just felt that they, they all fit together so nicely and they have kind of a, a really satisfying math to them and how they all become a become a whole thanks again friends for listening to episode 2b of the membership the excerpts read in this episode can be found in the long-legged house which was written by wendell berry and is published by counterpoint press if you like what you heard please take a few minutes to rate and review us on itunes this helps others find our podcast you can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at the handle MembershipPod, or find us online at MembershipPod.com. Next week, in Episode 3, we'll be discussing selections from The Broken Ground, Wendell Berry's first collection of poetry, originally published in 1964. To prepare for this episode, Tim, John, and I read the selections from The Broken Ground that were published in The New Collected Poems, which Counterpoint Press put out in 2012. So if you're following along with us, we'd recommend using that as your source text, especially since copies of Barry's early poetry collections may be hard to come by. The membership is a proud member of the Rabbit Room Podcast Network. To discover other great podcasts, visit rabbitroom.com slash podcasts.